and welcome to the annual teen episode of Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. For those of you who are new this year, welcome. And sort of like the kids episode, the way that was any age up to the age of 12, this special teen episode is made up completely of stories written by young authors from ages 13 to 17. We have quite a few submissions to get through this year, so I won't keep you long here at the top of the show. You saw the episode length. It's definitely longer than a usual Scary to Sleep episode, but I would like to say thank you so much to everyone who submitted this year, and I hope to see you around next year. Now, let's get on with the show. Untitled by Ben, age 15. Dale? Dale? I said, with tears in my eyes, as I tried to wake him up. We were driving down a road in a forest. We were on our way back from camping, and it was 12.03 p.m. We were going about 35 miles per hour, just laughing and driving. As we were talking, I heard my name called up ahead. I looked up and saw a woman standing in the middle of the road. What is that? Dale asked. I don't know, I replied as we drove towards her. A deer jumped into the middle of the road. Look out! I screamed as Dale swerved to the side. He tried to regain traction, but the back wheel was caught on a ledge, and it took the entire car down the hill. We were flipping down the hill, hitting a bunch of trees and bushes. When we finally reached the bottom, I slowly opened my eyes. Dale? Dale? I said, with tears in my eyes as I tried to wake him. No response. It seemed like the engine was going to explode, so I got out as fast as I could. I started to run away, but my leg was cut from the glass when the car crashed. I tried to get away, and the car went up in flames, and Dale was gone. Sitting there, I was just thinking to myself how this happened when I heard my name called again by a woman's voice. Thinking that it could be someone who could help, I started to go towards it, weaving my way through the brush. The calling eventually stopped, and it led me to what seemed like a basement. Hello? I asked quietly as I knocked on the door. I went to knock again, and the door abruptly opened. It was a dark staircase that led down to something I couldn't see. I started to make my way down the stairs when the door slammed shut and was locked. When I made my way to the bottom, suddenly, a light turned on. It felt like something or someone was breathing on my shoulder. Their breath was freezing. Hello? I called loudly, but no answer. I continued to make my way farther down, but there was this noise that sounded like someone was in the walls. Help! Help! Someone called, and I ran towards the noise. When I got there, it was a little girl with brown hair and a dress caught in a bear trap, ledged so deep in her leg, blood everywhere. 
I'm going to get you out of here, I said, as I tried to think of a solution for her. I didn't know what to do, because she had already lost a lot of blood. I went down to pull it out, and she disappeared, and the lights went out. There was a loud sound of a girl laughing that sounded like it was getting closer and closer. Eventually, it stopped. Okay, I'm getting out of here, I said as I started to sprint back to the door. I stopped right before I got to the staircase because there was a chair with a boy doll sitting on top of it. I looked back, but it was too dark to see anything. When I looked back at the doll, it was no longer in the chair. It was standing up, looking and staring right into my soul. I looked back again, and this time, when I looked back at the doll, there was no longer a doll, but a boy with hair covering his face with a bloody knife in his hand. It was 2.05 a.m., and it seemed like some early morning runners passed by the shed only to hear loud screaming and then silence. He looked at the shed, and the door slowly creaked open. He was going to keep moving, but was pulled in only for the door to shut behind him and lock. Untitled by Kaya C., age 15. Joseph Hicks wasn't very good at using a cell phone. In fact, he didn't even want a phone in the first place, and he knew he could live without one. But his children insisted. They were adults and wanted a way to contact him. He wasn't going to say no to that. He didn't use it very much, only to contact his kids and his own parents who, just like him, weren't very good at using their devices. It didn't take very long for his phone to cause problems just like he predicted it would. One morning, Joe was doing his routine just like normal, teeth brushing, breakfast, shower, then getting dressed and ready for a day at work. Everything seemed normal, and his phone stayed on his bed during the whole process without being touched once. Before he walked out the door to head to the office, Joe remembered to go back and grab his cell phone just in case someone needed him while he was at the office. There was a message from a number Joseph didn't recognize. He opened up the message to see what the hell it could be, and what he saw shocked him. The message was a photo of Joe. He looked to be tied up on a table, like someone was getting ready to do stuff to him. He had no memory of the event ever happening, but that was definitely him in the photo. It had to be some sort of prank. He didn't have the energy to deal with it, so he just went on with his day like nothing happened. The next day, the same thing happened. Joseph woke up and did his normal routine, then when he came back to get his phone, there was a message from a different number. This time, it was another picture of him except there was a bruise on his face, like he had been punched. Someone had hurt him. Now that it had happened twice, Joe was beginning to grow concerned. He decided not to bring his phone to work just in case whoever was sending these scary pictures was tracking him. 
This didn't seem to fix anything. When he got home and took another look at his phone, there was a picture of him covered in blood and cuts. It was getting worse. If the pictures progressed, eventually, he would be dead. The Boy Born to Kill by Acacia F., age 15. A boy who was born to kill. The child was born to a woman who only wanted a child for her personal benefit, wanting revenge on people she saw bad. Turning her hopefully bright child into a killing machine who only knows killing. He was to live in a dimly lit basement of his mother's house. He was fed once a day. After a week being in the basement, his mother stopped coming back. It had been three days since he saw anyone, until a man he never met had walked down the stairs to approach the boy. He stood tall above the boy with a menacing presence. The man came to the basement only to chain the boy to a chair and force him to watch gore videos, gruesome horror films, and videos of the man killing others or small animals. It was to ensure the boy had been normalized to seeing others die. They thought that if the boy saw others being killed, it would help the boy's motivation to build a violent nature. If the boy refused to go through with this process, he would get burned by cigarettes or cut with razor blades. As the boy grew older, he became more and more numb to blood and gore. Once his mother saw this, she had bought a life-size rubber mannequin that was filled with pig's blood and a hunting knife. It was to help the boy get a sense of stabbing a human. But the boy already knew what to do. Taking the knowledge that he got from the videos, he let loose on the mannequin. The man would sometimes come in and wrestle with the boy. Soon after the boy started getting a bit stronger, they put weights inside the basement. This was to help the boy build muscle. After days of the boy not holding his own against the man, caused the man to get ballistic. He grabbed a knife and pinned the boy to the ground, screaming at the boy about how he is too weak and how all this time would be wasted. The boy couldn't comprehend what happened until the man proceeded to carve into the right side of the boy's face, making the boy struggle and cry out. Look what we've caused. If you're going to act so weak, we might as well finish the look of you, clown. Continuing to finish the boy's second scar, just when he thought it was over, the man then put the knife to the boy's mouth. He carved deep. The hot blood ran down the boy's mouth. Two deep cuts were made on either side of the boy's face. The boy crawled to the nearest wall, trying to get away from the man, but it was no use. The man grabbed the boy's long hair and dragged him to the middle of the floor, directly over the single light in the room. He put the knife back to the boy's face. Look what you made me do. While holding the boy's hair, the man used the tip of the knife to cut the boy's eyes 
and made slits in them. The boy screamed his lungs out as the continuous torture happened. When it's finally over, he had now two scars over his eyes, cuts in the corners of his mouth, and blood-stained eyes. This event pushed him over the limit, now knowing not to step out of place and be stronger. After 20 years of gruesome abuse, trauma, and numbness, the boy was finally ready, almost a replica of Jason Voorhees, feeling nothing but rage and the knowing of to only listen to his mother. The night the boy planned to kill his first victim finally came. His mother showed her face to the boy after years of not. Here! She gave him a mask. It was tarnished, old, and looked like it had been used already. The eyes were terribly carved out by a dull knife, and a gruesome big smile with sharp teeth lay at the front. The straps on the mask were made of an old belt. The boy put the mask on and felt something he had never felt before. Kill them, Daz. Kill them all for me, she said as handing her son an axe. And that's what Daz intended to do. Lacey by Jaxel, age 13. My little sister got a doll for her birthday recently. It has silverish skin with sharp blue eyes, half white, half gray hair, with mushrooms growing out of its head, and a black shirt with those weird shoulder sleeves, and then a white ribbon around its neck. She called the doll Lacey. It's odd because all her other dolls are called Sparkle, Unicorn, Mrs. Cupcake, and some weird little kid shit. I never thought much about the doll, though, until I found it in my room one day. Christy! Damn it, come get your stupid doll! I yelled toward her room. Lacey! (laughs) She giggled as she saw the doll. There you are! Keep your dumb doll out of my room. But we were playing hide-and-seek. I... I don't pick where she hides. Christy grumbled. Whatever. I rolled my eyes. Just stay out of my room. And I pushed her out. At first, I thought it was just Christy playing in my room and forgetting the doll. Until it started showing up in my room when no one was home. Once, Christy and our parents were out at the park and she left Lacey on the couch. I had to pee, so like anyone else, I went to the bathroom, and when I went back, I saw Lacey wasn't there. I just ignored it and thought maybe she had just fallen. The weird thing, though, was when I went up to my room, there Lacey was, on my bed, her sharp blue eyes staring at me, almost like she was watching me. Things like that happen more and more often over the month, so I just got used to it. Tonight I have to watch Christy. Our parents are going on a date. It's their 23rd anniversary. Bye, Mom! Bye, Dad! Have fun! I yelled out the front door. 
The night went by pretty fast. We had dinner, watched a movie, and then I put Christy to bed. Around 30 minutes, it sounded like moving in Christy's room. Hey, go to bed! I yelled up to her. Another 30 minutes passed, and I heard the door open with a loud creak and footsteps run into my room. I groaned and went upstairs to put Christy back to bed. As I got upstairs, I saw Christy and her doll looking around in my room for something. What the fuck are you doing awake? I asked her. Lacey said I have to find something, she said. We'll tell Lacey you have to go to bed, I said, and started gently pushing her toward her own room. I got Christy back in bed and went downstairs. Scrolling through shows, I saw a report about a murder that had happened in the woods behind Christy's school. They showed the victim, and I recognized him. He had bullied Christy in the past. The odd thing about this case, the news reporter said, is that he had a white blood-soaked ribbon around his neck. They showed a photo of the ribbon, and... Oh my god... It was the same one as Lacey wears. I had a bad feeling about this. I should just call Maddie just in case something happens. Hey, are you able to come over? I texted her. Yeah, why? She responded. Just feeling a bit creeped out. I'll explain when you get here. Okay, be there soon. Ten minutes had passed and I heard a knock on the door. I opened the door and unsurprisingly it was Maddie. Hey, come in, I said, and moved so she could enter the house. What's up? She asked. You know the kid found in the woods a few days ago? I asked. She nodded her head. Well, apparently, he had a ribbon around his neck. And it's the same as Christy's weird doll. Weird, Maddie said. (laughs) I'm sure it means nothing. Do you want to hang and watch a movie till your parents get home? I agreed and went out to the living room and turned on some sappy late-night love show. I'm not sure how long had passed, but I saw a small figure run into the kitchen. Both me and Maddie got up, knowing it was Christy. Christy, I swear to God, I said, walking into the kitchen. If you don't go to... My words trailed off as I saw Christy grab a knife from the drawer. What are you doing?! I yelled. Put that down! Lacey says I have to, she whispered. Lacey is a doll. She can't make you do shit! I told her, trying to get closer to her. I have to. So we'll be friends forever. Christy, put the knife down and we can talk about this, Maddie said, getting closer than I was. You don't understand! She yelled, charging towards Maddie with a knife in one hand and Lacey in the other. Christy pushed Maddie back and then stabbed her where her ribs are. Maddie screamed in pain, shoving Christy to the ground. I stared at the two, my jaw wide open. Run! Maddie cried out, getting up as fast as she could and running behind me. We ran into my parents' room, slamming the door shut. I crawled under the bed as Maddie got in the closet. A few seconds passed before I heard the door handle jiggle and watched 
as the door flew open. I watched as Christy walked around the room, looking for, I'm assuming, us. She knocked slowly on the closet Maddie was in. I know you're in there. (laughs) She laughed. Her laugh was cold, empty, and evil. It wasn't her. It wasn't her laugh. I watched as she ripped the closet door open and a massive thud as it hit the wall. I put my hand over my mouth, hoping to whatever god was out there that would listen, that she wouldn't hear me. I heard Maddie scream in terror as she fell to the ground. I watched as she held her hands and arms up, trying to protect her face, and I watched as Christy sat on her chest with that stupid fucking doll still in her hands. I watched as she stabbed Maddie in the chest so many times I lost count. All I could do was try not to make a sound as I watched my best friend's blood get spattered everywhere, including on me. The sound of the knife hitting her chest each time caused shivers down my spine. I gagged as blood somehow managed to get into my mouth. As Maddie stopped moving, Christy got off her chest and sat by her bed. I witnessed in horror as she started cutting at Maddie's throat, trying to cut it off. After countless minutes, I watched as Maddie's head rolled a few inches away from her body and closer to me. I stared into Maddie's dead, cold eyes, wanting nothing more but to break down and cry. Christy picked up Maddie's head and positioned her so that her neck lined up with her body. I saw Christy grab a ribbon from her PJ pocket and tie it around Maddie's neck. It was the same white ribbon the dead boy and Lacey had. Was she trying to reattach the head to her body? Ebony, she said. I know you're in here. Just come out and play. I tried my best not to cry. She's gonna find me. I'm gonna die. As only a few seconds passed, I froze as my parents' bed moved. How was she pushing it by herself? She's only six. Christy, please, I said, muffled by my cries. My whole body was revealed. I sat up and pushed myself against the wall. You did this to yourself. Christy said. We could be happy, but you're just mean. I'll change. Please. I cried, trying to change her mind. They never change. She yelled. But it was like three of her screamed all at the same time. Lacey is my only true friend, and she says I have to kill you, I will. Christy. I mumbled, but it was too late. I felt the cold metal blade pierce my skin and go into my chest. I felt the blood trying to escape my mouth. I felt my soul leaving my body. I felt each time she did that, the pain slowly getting less and less, and I slowly left my body. As everything started turning black, I heard a voice that wasn't Christie's go. We'll be best friends forever.
covering the whole room with the vision I had left. I saw Lacey's ribbon fall down and Lacey's head soon following. A scream left Christy as I took my last breath, as everything went black and I left my body. I felt the warm splash of blood hit my body. If only she didn't get that damn doll. This next one is untitled and anonymous by a 13-year-old, but they would like you to know that there are razor blades and there is blood mentioned, so just be warned. Dear Brad, Today I found something rather peculiar in the creek. It's a tiny pocket mirror. Bits and pieces are missing, and the outside is broken. It seems like something I could bring next time I see you. When I brought it home, Mom said to throw it away instantly. Instead, I took it up to my room. Currently, it's sitting in my sock drawer, under the socks Grandma knitted me for Christmas two years ago. Come to think of it, that was the last time I saw you. I remember it very vividly. We went outside in the snow and played for hours and hours until our noses were red and runny. After, we drank hot chocolate. Mary had spit hers out because it was too hot. She got a nasty burn. In fact, she still talks about it today, even though it's already healed. School starts soon, too. Mom is sending both Mary and I to Beckerson Prep this year. She says it's to help me get into college. I would rather stay at public school with Henry and Nick. I'm pretty sure you met them a few years ago when you came to visit. I remember all four of us playing down by the creek that day, too. Nick had fallen into the creek and couldn't get out, so all of us jumped in and saved him. The water was filled with algae and garbage that day. No wonder he got stuck. Both of them still talk about that, too. I'm going to the library to figure out how to clean and somewhat restore the mirror. I miss you, Landon. Dear Brad, I went to the library yesterday. Weirdly enough, when I tried finding books about repairing mirrors, I found nothing. And when I asked the librarian, she said they didn't have any. But when I did a little bit more searching, I found a book on mirrors themselves. It's called Mythical Mirrors. I took it home with me, making sure that it was out of sight. If mom found the book, she would know that I still had the mirror, and that wouldn't be good. I've been reading the book, and it seems like a bunch of rituals on how to contact the dead. I might try one tonight when the bell rings 12. The ritual says that I need a bottle of alcohol and a knife. When the clock chimes midnight, I need to cut myself and use the blood to write my name three times. After, I need to soak the paper in alcohol and rub it on the mirror. Spooky, right? The alcohol and knife won't be hard to get because I already know the code to the safe where dad keeps his alcohol, and I got a pocket knife for my 12th birthday. The hard part is trying to cut myself in the middle of the night without making a sound. I guess I'll try. Tell grandma I said hello. Landon. Dear Brad, the ritual was interesting, to say the least. Cutting myself was quite easy. I found a razor in father's cabinet and used that instead of a pocket knife. I also chose some vodka in the back of the cabinet for the alcohol, too. 
When the ritual was done, I started seeing shadows when I peered into the mirror. I don't know if it worked. I'm going to try it again tomorrow. I will update you as soon as possible. Landon. Dear Brad, performing the ritual again was a terrible mistake. After rubbing the paper on the mirror, I heard a voice. It said, You will burn. You will pay. I'm somewhat freaked out and I have no idea what to do. I'm hoping this is a figment of my imagination and that none of this is real. The shadows appeared too. I saw them when it was getting dark. I'm going to return the book and pretend like none of this happened. I hope it works. Wish me luck. Landon. Dear Brad, I keep seeing them. The shadows. They're appearing more and more often now. Even in broad daylight. I can't escape. I told Mom. She said I was crazy, and if I didn't stop, she would send me to one of those schools for the delusional. If you're seeing this, it probably means that I'm being sent to an asylum as we speak. I have sent the mirror to you. Whatever you do, don't look. Landon. This next story is called, She Had Moved On, by Ava, age 13, and Ava has also included her own trigger warnings. Trigger warning, affair, gore, miscarriage, suicidal thoughts, brief self-harm. Thank you, Ava. The dark halls reeked with the smell of mildew. The damp moss growing on the hard stone beneath my feet squished as I walked. These familiar halls, the ones I had once called my home sweet home, were now wrecked with the toll of time. How it devastated me to know that this place, with all its gloominess, was being torn down. I was calm as I strolled through the house. I had come back to say goodbye even though the house wasn't much. It was where I had grown up. It was the same house I first fell in love. The same house I first was a mother. The same house I was in at this very dull moment. I hadn't had a hard time at all getting into the house. All it took were some pliers and a crowbar. Was I worried about getting arrested? Maybe, but the property was still in my name, so technically, no, I couldn't get arrested. I had made my way through the Victorian-styled home easily, kicking the occasional empty drink can out of the way and hearing the scamper of rodents. I looked around, remembering an assortment of memories. I was now walking towards the stairs to the attic, the terribly cliched, scary attic. It had always posed a threat to the young me. My mom and I had heard noises from up there, everything from laughing to screaming. It took me a moment to jar the doors open, for the weathering of the home hadn't forgotten about this part either. I walked into the dusty room, 
making footprints on the rotted hardwood floors. God, this probably wasn't safe, but it was too late to go back now. I walked around, taking in the room that was going to conclude my walk down memory lane. Not much had survived in the attic, looking around. I saw a small glistening of the thing I had dreaded seeing the most. The murder weapon. My mom had killed my dad and threatened to kill me if I ever turned her in. I mean, I'm sure I would be protected by the police from my mom. She had killed him after their marriage had plunged under. He had an affair and in all honesty, I couldn't really blame him. My mother was very toxic. She was constantly instigating fights and could never let go of a grudge. It's so sad my dad had to be the witness of that. He was a great man. After grabbing the knife, careful to avoid getting my fingerprints on it, I slowly looked at the detailing on the plain kitchen knife. Time to go, some part of me thought. Making my way down the steep attic stairs, I paused. Something was off. My senses clung to the idea, making anything and everything I heard and saw a threat. I surveyed my surroundings, trying to take in what little bit I could. And then it came to me. I knew what was off. This thing making me feel so hollow, empty, scared. I was alert in a place I shouldn't be. My home. A place I should put my walls down. But my subconscious didn't agree. The soft rolling of wheels in the attic. The scary cliche attic. Was it her? The girl? It had to be. It just had to be. I felt it in that hollow pit. I felt something that was missing for the past five years. A child was filling that emptiness. My child. My sweet, sweet girl. She was here. Right now. And I could go to her. There was no feeling than the feeling of a mother being away from her child. The hole it created. It was deep. But now the walls of that hole were caving in. And slowly I was clawing out of it. Slowly fighting my way out. I clambered back up those steep stairs. Back into that unsafe, scary, cliched attic. And saw my daughter. I hadn't seen her in five years. Those years were long. She was on the tricycle my mother had gotten as a baby shower gift before I lost her. I had lost my girl in a late miscarriage. She was here. She was right here. No more than a meter away, looking at me with those empty eyes and abyss of black. I never knew why I had lost her, nor did I want to know. She was beautiful. Besides the fact she was dead. 
and without any eyes. She had the same hair I had at her age. Corkscrew curls in the ashen color of brown. My fair lips, the top one drawing high, the lower in a thin line. Her nose was just like her father's. A little nose, a button nose, small, petite, fitting her frame perfectly. Something hit me then, almost like a possession. It hit like a wall of bricks. I, I could be with her in this house forever. I already had what I needed and I looked down at the knife as if I were asking it for permission. The small glint from the moonlight seemed to encourage me as if to say, yes, yes, use me, use me to be with your girl, your father, in this house, forever. That was enough to convince me. I set the pliers and crowbar down and brought the weapon to my lower abdomen, right above my uterus. A prime place to do it, I thought. Punish the thing that made me lose my daughter in the first place. I took the tip of the blade to my stomach, feeling all that power to end everything right there. I had the power to right the wrong. I poked my stomach with the tip of the blade, as if I were testing a freshly drawn tub of hot bath water. The satisfying feeling of warmth, red warmth, appeared on my shirt. Small bits at first, like a fire being brought to life. But for me, I wasn't being brought to life. I was being brought to death. The happy thought of death. Or not so happy. Maybe scary. My eyes looked for my daughter, as if asking for her approval too. I knew I could be with her, touch her, help her, watch her grow up in her ghostly life, in this ghostly home, torn down or not. She looked at me with her empty eyes, approving permitting the doom I was bringing upon myself. I brought the blade to my stomach, pressing hard this time. The feeling of warmth came again, stronger this time, much stronger. Soon it was turning into a searing, hot pain. My loose-fitting white t-shirt was now red, my absolute favorite color. Or at least, now it was. The whole time this was going on, I was looking at my girl, who I had named Catherine. She was there, so deadly alive, sitting there like that on her tricycle. I saw the sadness she had. I mean, of course she was sad. She was unwillingly dead had died so close to being alive. It was as if, for her, she was running a marathon of life, so close to the finish line, 
so close. Meters, feet, inches, centimeters, millimeters, now... And then she falls. She gets bruised up, bad. And she can't run anymore. This marathon was her life. It was over. Other people were lucky and crossed the finish line, but not her. That's when I realized I didn't want my marathon to be over. My baby, my sweet Catherine, was dead. There wasn't anything to do to fix it. She was gone. I looked up then, after I had been closing my eyes, and saw she was gone. She was better now. I could feel it. The hollow hole of being away from my child was filled now. It was full and overflowing. I was relieved. I walked, more of a limp now, once again, down the stairs to the attic and through the mildewy halls, the moss-covered stone floors, and out the busted door. She had moved on, and so should I. Now, I was headed to the police. I wasn't, however, going to move on from the thing my mother had done. So I hobbled, the fresh wound reminding me of my baby I never had. The End The Yellow Room by Jocelyn B., age 13 She was ten years old. It was the year that would live on in infamy during the London Blitz. These were the only things she remembered about the outside world before coming to the hospital. About a week after she entered, she remembered a white light exploding, her ears ringing, and all things morphing into an offish yellow color. Nobody came to get her for breakfast, per the usual. She walked down to the cafeteria and sat down at a table. Robert was sitting there. Robert was a boy who looked to be about 14, was ungodly skinny and tall, like he hadn't eaten in weeks. Black circles encased his eyes, indicating that he hadn't slept for the same amount of time. He perpetually shivered and whispered beneath his breath whenever he was in the girl's company, almost as if he were afraid of an inevitable doom. The girl looked, finding everybody silent as usual. Everybody was either sitting or standing up against the wall. Those standing up against the wall had round scarlet scars on their heads, faces, necks, shoulders, and chests. The girl never really questioned this, for the scars had been there for as long as she could remember. After breakfast, she went to find Nurse Susanna, the only friend that she had in this place besides Robert. The girl asked around the hospital, but nobody answered. She believed this would happen. 
She checked the break room and there was Nurse Susanna, standing against the wall. The break room only had a few pieces of furniture, a yellow couch, a cabinet, and a phonograph, which played Puttin' on the Ritz, sung by Fred Astaire on repeat, despite the song being over a decade old. The phonograph sat on a very high up shelf on the left wall. The break room also had yellow floral wallpaper that she found quite beautiful. Nurse Susanna, like most of the nurses, wore a pastel yellow dress uniform with a red cross on the apron and her cap. She had very dark brown eyes and hair, which was in a tight bun at the back of her head. She was larger built, which suited her curves. Nurse Susanna's one constant flare was the victory red lipstick she'd worn from the day the girl first met her. Her neck was always oddly angled and leaned toward her right shoulder. The girl remembered how she would listen to Nurse Susanna talk and complain about things with the other nurses. Nurse Susanna had always been interested in makeup and things of that nature. Nurse Susanna was clasping a letter from her husband, who was stationed somewhere in Germany. She hadn't talked about anything for the past few days. The girl simply stared at her for hours. At noon, the girl realized that she hadn't taken her medication. Don't worry, Nurse Susanna, she stated while exiting the room. I'll be back. I need my medication. No response. The girl wandered over to the staff-only room where the medication was kept. She read the bottle, shook out one tablet, like the label said, and popped it into her mouth. Within minutes, everything cleared from that blurred yellow to its original color. The entire scene cleared, became the reality it was. Everything was broken, on the floor, and highly damaged except for a few cabinets and smaller objects. She scrambled to the hallway, only to discover more horrors waiting for her. The people standing up against the wall weren't really standing there. Instead, nails driven through their heads held them up like a psychopath's chosen art. All were misshapen and dead. The scarlet scars were where the lobotomy spikes were forced into their bodies and into the wall to keep them standing. Of the people on the chairs, Robert was the only one still living, though death was obviously knocking impatiently at his door. The girl screamed, realizing what had been done. She looked at the break room. It was yellow and floral. Hope. She sprinted across the hallway and into the break room, turned around and shut the door. Oh, Nurse Susanna, she sighed in relief. I think we're safe in here. The girl turned to face Nurse Susanna, and the terror ripped the speech right from the girl's mouth. She rose, trembling fingers, to her trembling lips. Nurse Susanna was secured to the wall by a rusty lobotomy spike, just like everyone else. Her broken neck was always at that angle that was oh so familiar. 
covered in dust and blood, her neck lay limply on her shoulder. In a panic, the girl screamed and ran into the halls of the break room, tearing at the wallpaper in a hysterical fit, trying to get out. She slammed into the left wall. She looked up, only to see the shelf leaning and the phonograph teetering. She had no time to move. Death was upon her. There was no escaping the horrors that she and the bomb had done to the hospital. She screamed. Then, absolute silence. Ghost Hunt by L, age 14. My footsteps echoed in the mist. Dead leaves crunched and crackled under my feet. I thought about leaving. I thought about just messaging Sam that I was feeling sick or some other lame excuse like that. I thought about just hightailing it out of there and pretending it never happened. But I couldn't do that now. Sam would think I was a chicken and I would never live it down. I was one of the cool kids and cool kids never chicken out. I sat on a tombstone and waited. Glancing at my watch, I realized that it was 11.52. Only eight minutes until midnight. Come on, Sam! I said out loud. My voice echoed across the empty cemetery. Where are you? I waited, pacing up and down. Seven minutes, six, five, four, three, two, one. Then finally my watch vibrated against my wrist and started beeping. It was midnight. I looked up scanning my surroundings and preparing for whatever was going to happen next. Nothing happened. Sam and I were sure that something would happen. We'd planned for weeks. This was one of the reasons I was so frustrated with him for not being here. Seconds passed. Still nothing. This didn't make sense. We were so sure that something, whatever it was, was going to happen. I slumped back down feeling defeated. But then, finally, I saw a figure come sweeping out of the mist. Finally, I thought. It's Sam. He's here. Although I was happy and relieved that he had finally shown up, I was also angry and frustrated with Sam for leaving me out here alone. We were supposed to do this as a team, and he was violating our ghost-hunting code of honor by being so late. I crossed my arms, assuming an air of grumpiness, and glanced down at my watch to see that it was now a whole two minutes past midnight, and we were supposed to meet here at 11.30. That's right, 11.30. I was more infuriated than ever by this, and proceeded to shout at the figure in an aggravated tone. Oi! I shouted, cupping my hands to my mouth. Why on earth are you so freaking late? I made an exasperated gesture with my hands. I thought we agreed to 11.30. Do you know how long ago that was? The figure was about 20 feet away. 
but I could see that it seemed to be drifting through the mist instead of walking. I tried to convince myself that it was just my mind playing tricks on me, but something about the way the figure moved thoroughly unnerved me. All my enragement and frustrations was now melting into a slight sense of fear. A shiver made its way from my neck all the way down my spine. The figure abruptly stopped walking and just stood there, as if examining me. I couldn't see the figure's face, but I was beginning to realize two things. One, this was not Sam. And two, this thing, whatever it was, was undoubtedly very evil. The thing that wasn't Sam suddenly jerked its head right back and emanated a shrill, long, loud scream. The scream bounced off the headstones and echoed all around the graveyard. It penetrated my eardrums and wove itself into my brain. I wanted to scream back at the figure, but no sound escaped my lips as I stood there staring wide-eyed at the thing still screaming into the night. Then, just as suddenly as it had begun, the screaming stopped. As my brain slowly rewired itself and my body began to unfreeze, I saw the figure tilt its head forward again and resume its long, hard stare. Slowly, I took a small step backwards, keeping my eyes glued to the figure. I cringed as my foot crushed the leaves and twigs lying all around. The figure followed my movement with its eyes, and then mimicked my motion. Only, it took a step forward. The crunch of leaves under its foot, echoing similarly to my step. With that sound, any hopes that this might be a harmless ghost left my mind. The foot that crushed those leaves was very much real, and so was the body attached to it. With that thought in mind, I decided that my best chance to make it out of the cemetery alive was to turn on my heel and run like my life depended on it. Because it did. I didn't look back. I just fled the scene and kept on running. Whatever I did, I could not stop running. I hurtled over headstones and graves, keeping my eyes fixed on one thing. The cemetery gate. As I came closer and closer to my goal, my adrenaline climbed higher and higher until I slammed into the closed gate and blacked out. When I woke up, I found that I was still lying exactly where I had fallen. In my haste, I had forgotten that I had to climb the gate to get into the graveyard in the first place. I had not thought about needing a speedy getaway later on. I stood up and looked around the graveyard. There was nothing but eerie stillness of the dead, buried deep beneath the ground. I let out the long breath that I had forgotten I was holding. Then a thought hit me. What if Sam had come to the graveyard tonight? The question burned like a flare in my mind. I looked around the bottom of the gate. The ground was dusty and well-trodden, but I could still see the imprint in the dirt where I had jumped down off the gate and into the cemetery a few hours ago. 
The disturbing thing was, my footprints weren't the only ones imprinted in the ground. There was another set of footprints, similar in size to mine, pressed into the dusty earth. They were undoubtedly Sam's. Knowing this new information pushed me to a new level of fear. If Sam had come to the graveyard, he could still be here. He could still be in the cemetery with that thing. Now, I couldn't leave. Not now that I knew he was here. Not now that I had the chance to save him from whatever thing I had just barely escaped from. I checked my watch. It was one o'clock in the morning. I still had time. As I warily walked back among the headstones, feeling ill at all the terrifying possibilities, a final, almost hysterical thought came to my mind. I chuckled dryly. All this, just for a ghost hunt. Audrina, age 13, The Legend of Dogman. This is my version of The Legend of Dogman. Warning, do not read if scared easily. One night, there was a family camping in a cabin in the woods, down in Cadillac. It was nighttime at the time, and the little boy was about eight, and he was deaf, so he was playing in the light of the window, where his parents could see him. But what he did not know was there was a pack of hungry wolves stalking him in the shadows. His parents tried to warn him, but he was deaf, so he could not hear his parents banging on the windows. But by the time he had noticed his parents, it was too late, and the wolves were attacking the boy. The parents had no choice but to shoot. They missed the wolves and skinned the boy's arm, then the wolves ran off with the boy. The parents had never forgiven the wolves. No matter if they were puppies or full-grown, they would shoot them. Now, about the boy. The wolves had taken him as one of their own, and as that boy grew older, he started to change. He grew fangs and claws and a snout. Instead of feet, he walked on just two paws. He grew very tall, seven foot five to be exact. And now, every ten years, he will come out of hiding and remind us he is not dead, but known as Dogman. No one is ever really gone by Hayden, age 15. We were the average American family. I had two loving parents, a sassy sister, and two very different dogs. But as I would soon learn, not everyone in my family is as loving as my parents. Rocky was an old dog and not very adaptive to change. So when we got a young, playful puppy, it took Rocky a while to get used to him. Since Teddy was a puppy, we gave him more attention and we suspected that Rocky was getting jealous. Before we could let Teddy be more independent and give Rocky some more attention, 
Rocky died. My entire family was distraught, but none more than my sister, Kaylin. She has always loved animals to the point that if a pet fish that she neglected suddenly died, her whole day would be ruined. Kaylin loved Rocky more than anyone in our family, and she wouldn't stop crying for days. We were all getting tired of her endless sobbing. A couple of days after Rocky died, my parents called us downstairs. They told us to gather around the garage so that they could give us a surprise. We closed our eyes and waited. Okay, open your eyes, my mom exclaimed. Kaylin was in awe and I was in shock. There he was, Rocky's posed body sitting in front of me. But there was something strange. His eyes seemed alive. My parents explained that they got him taxidermy so that he could be with us forever. After my disgust and my sister's excitement, my dad set Rocky above the fireplace like a trophy. I couldn't comprehend for the rest of the day what had gone through my parents' minds. I eventually decided to head upstairs and go to bed. But before I did, I looked towards the fireplace and shook my head in disbelief. I woke in the middle of the night to the sound of my mom screaming. I ran downstairs to see what was wrong. My mom said that she saw something lurking above her, a wolf-like figure with red eyes. We thought that she was just having a nightmare, so we all went back to bed. But as I walked upstairs, I glanced toward the fireplace again, and what I saw made me tremble in fear. Rocky was no longer on top of the fireplace, but instead, he was below it. Even stranger, Rocky was no longer sitting down like he was yesterday, but now it was almost like he was stalking something. I went back to my parents' room, to the side of my dad, leaning over my mom. I asked him what's wrong, and he looked up at me with tears in his eyes. Your mother is dead. My dad told me to go get Kaylin while he got Teddy. We were going to leave. We met by the front door. My dad told me to hold on to Teddy while he gets Rocky. After all, he is family. I gave Teddy to Kaylin, but as soon as I did, he escaped the transfer and ran towards dad. My dad came back and said he couldn't find Rocky, and I asked him if he grabbed Teddy. My dad looked confused as he said he didn't see Teddy run by him. And that's when I heard Teddy whimper. We ran around the house looking for Teddy but couldn't find him. My dad told me and my sister to go wait outside while he finds Teddy. We walked towards the door and my sister twists the knob, but it was locked. We desperately tried to open the door, but it was no use. We decided to go and try the back door, but as we walked, my dad screamed and the lights went out. My sister clutched my arm in fear. I tried to comfort her as we continued to walk to the back door. Then my sister tapped me on the arm and pointed to the darkness. I couldn't see anything and turned to ask Caitlin what she saw. Before she said anything, something pulled her. She grabbed my leg as she screamed. I tried my best to hold on to her, but she got pulled into the darkness. I looked for the back door, but there was no light. All I could see was the dead of night. 
I started running to the last place I saw, but I ran into the coffee table. And that's when I heard a growl. I looked around and saw red eyes just staring at me. Then it came closer, the eyes becoming bigger and the growl becoming louder. Before I could do anything, Rocky attacked me. As the sun rose over suburbia, no one knew of the horrors that waited inside. All they knew was that Rocky was barking at morning joggers and chasing squirrels along the fence line. Such a good boy. This is Untitled by Astro, age 14. I don't usually start my day early. Today, I'm in the bathroom putting water on my face at four in the morning. It's not that I have a skincare routine or anything. I just can't drown out the screams. They won't shut up. They're just getting louder as I start screaming with them. I can't get rid of them. They are conscious. Pills won't work and screaming at them makes them louder. And I try to tune into their voices, but they make my ears hurt. I live in a secluded area and there isn't any other human life form for another six miles west. So it's pointless to try and find outside help. I close the cabinet under the sink and look up at the mirror. That's when I see them. Translucent and violently pale. Some had three heads, others none. Perhaps six or seven bodies, and if you're counting heads, eight and a half. Only for a second, though. I only catch a glimpse before they all disappear and it all goes quiet. At this point, I don't know when I blacked out or how I even got back in my bed. But it's four in the morning again, and I can hear the screams begging to come in, nails scratching the walls, tearing the paint while carving the wood. There isn't much I can do, but I wasn't ever one to fear death, so I grab the bat under my bed and head towards the door slowly. I slowly turn the knob and swing down, putting all my weight into it, creating a long dent in my floorboards. But again, nothing. I turn on all the lights in the house. Perhaps it won't do anything, but I'm willing to believe it for a while. I can't sleep, so I start boiling water to make tea for my nerves. There isn't much to do, so I stand and stare as the bubbles rise and pop with a deep gurgle sound. Over and over and over and over and over I snap my fingers out of the water as scalding forms and skin starts to peel off I can't tell if the cool air irritates or soothes it but I just let it be and turn off the stove with it feeling the pressure hurt like a deep sting that travels through my spine and up 
It hurts to touch anything, so I head towards my room and get dressed to go out. Once I step outside, I run as fast as my legs can. Within 10 minutes or so, I can feel myself slowing down as the air seems to burn my lungs from the inside, practically stumbling past trying to keep going. After a while, I find myself collapsed at the entrance of what seems to have been a theme park in another life. Like I said, I don't fear death. There's no reason to. I am death itself. I've taken lives and bodies, but not spirits. Conscience itself is matter. So to the inhuman eye, when a body is discarded of its conscience, is simply let loose of its mortal bound. So when I take over a body, I simply let its spirit free. The first time I took a body, I was a hunter. But the thing is, humans are different. They beg, they plead. They scream for their lives. But I love the chase. Untitled by Lily Nix, age 15. Twenty, twenty, wake up, Seventeen said shaking his older brother. Twenty? Twenty did not respond. Seventeen left him alone. Walking down the rotting hallway to the courtyard, Seventeen acknowledged the singing vultures by chucking rocks at them, then embraced the wooden stakes in which the beheaded crowns of fifteen and three resided. Seventeen learned to live with the ghoulish screaming of his younger sister, Ten, who lived in the basement. But today, she was quieter than usual. Seventeen had never noticed the howling in the woods, but while walking through the forest, the wind was the only noise to respond to Seventeen's footsteps. Seventeen was always interested in water witches. Their tools are good at finding things. So... Seventeen tramped through the woodland, searching for a dowsing rod in hopes of finding four. The trees swayed with grief, but were whistling in anger. Seventeen didn't pay attention. The neighbors had been gone for a few months. The street dogs had ripped them apart by the limbs. But it didn't phase Seventeen. They weren't very nice anyway. Nine had not been home for a few days. Four was with her, but that didn't matter. Seventeen rummaged through the wood, finding the old playhouse that he and his siblings used to play in. The night grew cloudy, and it began raining through the broken windows of the burned playhouse. Walking through the door, Seventeen saw Nine lying on the floor, face down, lifeless. But this didn't bother Seventeen. Seventeen found a spiky thorn branch dowsing rod. He followed it to find Four, his brother, who hung from the gallow of the old oak tree 
four looked peaceful in his damned position. But it didn't bother Seventeen. Six was playing with the family umbrella when Seventeen got back to the house. It's too bad that it's still storming outside. Seventeen went to his room. He called for Eight in the hallway, but she didn't respond. Poor Eight. If only she learned how to swim. She always forgets to close her window, but this time, she failed to open it. It's not her fault she didn't know the attic leaked. It's too bad her room flooded. Sixteen wasn't allowed to see his twin, Seventeen. One sent Sixteen downstairs to cool off after Seventeen and he got into a fight, but he lost the key to the basement and did not bring it to the boiler room. Seventeen found it the other day. It's strange how the basement lock looks like a coffin, yet the key looks like a hand. And it's funny how it was in the living room, in the hands of Fifteen. Somebody forgot to lock the glass showcase. Fourteen never liked the cold, so a fire was her first choice. I've never understood her fascination for witches, even though I kept telling her, Wicca won't help your trial. She didn't listen. I watched her burn from my window. She was stunning. Seventeen headed back to the courtyard from his room. Ten wasn't screaming for two. She was still quiet. Seventeen went to check on her. When Seventeen opened the trap doors, Ten stood there, unholily. Eleven, her demon friend, had possessed her. How sweet. They're finally getting along. Though, sadly, Eleven is her demon. But the one down the street looks so lonely. Eleven was very young when someone persuaded her to become a child possessor. She was just a small girl in the hands of the horned ruler. Seventeen left Ten alone. She seemed excited to go with Eleven. I wonder what hell is like. Nineteen ran away the other day. It's a shame they found her body. She almost won. Eighteen isn't usually up for games, but Nineteen insisted on winning. It's unsettling that Nineteen could have won when the race started. But she never did, because they found her. All she won was a celebration of her decease that she never admitted attending. Eighteen didn't know where Nineteen was hiding, so he gave up looking for her. I don't know where he went. I guess 18 is the real winner. They still haven't found him yet. 13, the oldest, has always been the favorite. It wasn't clear why he wanted one thing from all of us. All he asked for was to be left alone. I never thought he meant alone by himself, six feet underground. And all alone, he buried himself alive. Two still doesn't know. Thirteen told me not to tell. So I won't. Walking down the hill to the graveyard, Seventeen could still hear him. His breathing was heavy 
and his laugh was deep. There's a chalkboard screeching every once in a while. I wonder if he's doing all right. I hope the lid on his pine box isn't loose. That would not be good, because he wouldn't be alone. One is odd. All one talks about is twelve. Who's twelve? One says twelve is my sister, but I've never met twelve. One says that they had a nasty fight a few years back, when one told twelve to get a job. She never thought twelve would go to jail instead, but she broke out recently. Seventeen awoke to sirens at three the following morning. What are those red and blue lights outside my window? They want twelve. Who's twelve? What's that in the doorway? Twelve? Seventeen pondered. The figure didn't answer. It just moved closer to me. I got out of bed and moved closer to the wall. I felt a small gust of air on the back of my neck. The window was open. Who opened the window? Don't move, the figure said. The lamp in the hallway went out. A gunshot fired. The police entered Seventeen's room, calling for Twelve, who stood blindly in the middle of the floor, looking for her victim. Twelve thought she got me. But what she doesn't know is she missed. Twelve was arrested. I'm surprised they didn't search for Seven as well. Seven broke out of the neighborhood insane asylum after decapitating the security guard with a broom. I've only heard stories that two and one have told me. They said he broke out after three was born. Two said he roams around the property. One said you can't see his face because he hides it. And don't try to talk to him because he might hurt you. They also say he's abnormally tall as well. Seventeen went to bed right after Twelve left. He felt fine. Twelve didn't bother Seventeen. Seventeen was used to unusual. It's normal for him. That strange man is back, standing at the foot of Seventeen's bed. Tonight the man has a crowbar. Yesterday it was a sickle. The lights flipped on. Two stood in the doorway, then began checking under my bed. Lose something? Seventeen asked. I can't find my sickle, or my crowbar, Two said. I need them for the harvest tomorrow morning. Two sighed, then stood up from the floor, and left the room. You left the light on, Seventeen beckoned. A black hand came up from behind the dresser, and rested on the light switch. Don't worry, I'll get it, a voice said from behind the dresser. Thanks, Seven. The light flicked off. Morning crows are the most relaxing way to wake up. One wasn't downstairs, and two was under the tractor outside. The harvest must have been good. He died from excitement, or maybe disappointment. Who knows? Both are good. Nope. Neither. 
He has a big slash on his back that goes through his chest. I guess five was with him. Five usually goes with two to the harvest, or at least I think he does. He helps two harvest wheat and carries around a scythe. I never understood what he did with it, but he taught me about it. He even let me use it. I tried using it once on ten, and it quickly became an addiction. Chasing my siblings with it was fun, unless one of them got hurt. Last Halloween, he got me my side, but I chose to slowly wean myself off of it. It caused too many problems. I traded my scythe to a woman with an eye patch for something of more value. A cloak. Two gave me something to trade before he went to the harvest. A nice man with a tail wanted what two gave me, and I got a nice pair of horns for it. It was Twenty's heart. One has started giving me nicknames, but my favorite is Fonse. It means dark, but I feel it goes with my soul. The one I have now, not the one I used to carry with me. My old one's with my heart. In the living room, next to Fifteen's hands. Except my case has a lock. It's sweet that one let me display it in the living room. I've always wondered why she keeps things close. One has been distant lately. She keeps saying she misses me. But I'm right here. It's okay, though. Her eyes are getting old. At least I get to see her. The other day, one received a telegram that Twelve was executed for murder. And I always knew Seven was never alive. One and two made up stories about a creature so I wouldn't leave the house. The figment of Seven just haunted my room. He would paralyze me when I was asleep. But he got bored of me and went with Eleven and Ten. And Five took his life to be a reaper. One has always been somewhat close to our neighbors. I couldn't hear them clearly. But when one talked to the neighbors, they would call my siblings by their names. But they never called me by my name. They always called me something, boy. Even to my face, when they were around, they would call me boy. What was it? De, de, dead boy. I understand now. Good night. Untitled by Audrey, age 14. It was the first day of October and everyone was looking forward to Halloween in the small town of Willsbury. The children were choosing their costumes that they would eventually change, teens were planning their attacks on houses, and adults were getting out their credit cards to buy unusually large amounts of candy. To them, Halloween was a spooky holiday that made everyone come together, and no one even dared to ruin the holiday, except for this year. The first day of October had passed, and it was nightfall. 
a family man named Robert Semmes was out for a run at 7 p.m. The Semmes were essentially the American dream, as were most town folks in Willsbury. That was the first victim of the victim's list. It was October 2nd after that, and soon they found a second victim. The second victim was also a family man, very similar to Robert. He was found dead at 8 o'clock at night, with several stab wounds. This was a common theme for all the unfortunate deaths. Several weeks had passed, and suburban dads were dropping like flies every day in October. Soon enough, it was Halloween Eve, and the police had no leads. Then, another victim that was named Dan Evans was found. But this time was different. The words, wait for the big Halloween surprise, was on Dan's forehead. Police panicked and tried to find all the information they could. They found nothing. So all they could do was wait. It was bright and early Halloween, and what was in the town square made everyone sick. All the heads of the victims on stakes around another head. The middle head was unlike the other heads. The eyes were open. The other heads were labeled on which October day they were murdered, while the middle one did not. On top of the founder's statue in Town Square, a letter had emerged. The letter said, Happy Halloween. I'll be enjoying it with my head buddies. After that, no more murders happened for another 50 years. The Grave by Christiana W., age 14. Once upon a time, in a quiet, foggy town, Silver Rock Hollow, a 16-year-old boy, Luke, and his friend Brady, also 16, were walking down the street to the corner store by Luke's house. They come across an old compass that was obviously run over by cars multiple times. But, as intrigued teenage boys, they pick it up as they are walking. They don't think anything of it. But on their way back to Luke's house, they find a piece of paper on the other side of the road. They pick it up and open it, and it is very old and you can barely read it. But from what you can read, it says, I will find you, J.B. Brady and Luke look frightened. They get back to Luke's house and go upstairs to his room. Once they get up to his room, they observe the compass and see that something is carved into the top of it. And it says, Hartford Grave. Everyone knows about the Hartford Grave. It is basically the only grave in Silver Rock. They decide to go to the grave at six-ish before dinner. Later that night, Luke's mom calls them down to set the table because she is about to start dinner. They set the table, then walk to the grave. Once they get to the grave, they just walk around with the compass in their hands. Luke and Brady have no idea what they are looking for, but they finally come across another compass, but this one is smaller and gold instead of silver. Brady tried to get the new compass open, but they couldn't get it open, so they try and pry it open, and it finally pops open, and a picture flies out of it and goes into the grass. Luke tries to find the picture, but can't, 
So Brady goes over to the area that it fell, and Brady finds it. It is a picture of an older man and a kid holding up a fish on an old fighting boat. Brady thinks the boy looks really familiar. Little do they know, it's Luke with his dead grandfather. Luke and Brady walk back to Luke's house and kind of forget about everything that's happened and go to bed. Later in the morning, both of them wake up and it's 10.24 a.m. Luke goes downstairs to see if his mom has cooked anything for breakfast, but she wasn't even up yet. So Luke goes upstairs to Brady and says, Let's go back to the grave and see if we can find anything else. And Brady says, Okay, sure. They both walk to the grave and see there's a pile of dirt sitting by the grave. They run over to the grave and notice it's grandfather's grave. The casket is gone. Luke and Brady ran back to his house and woke his mom up to tell him, but before they could get to her room, they stopped at the fridge for some water. Brady looks to the side of the fridge and sees a picture of Luke and his grandfather and thinks it looks familiar. So Brady runs upstairs and gets the picture that flew out of the compass to compare it to the one on the fridge. They're identical! Before Brady could tell Luke, they hear a loud bang from upstairs and run up there and find a body turned face down, lying in a pool of blood. I wonder who it is. Thanks for listening. A huge thank you again to all the authors who submitted. I know it isn't easy to put your work out there like that. When I was your age, I had a hard time letting anyone read the things that I wrote, even though I was writing constantly. So I'm so honored that you chose my humble little show to highlight your work. I do these kid and teen episodes every year. So if you miss the deadline this year, or if you have a kid or teen in your life who you think would be interested in this, don't worry, there's always next year, and you have a whole year to hone your skills and storyboard something extra scary for next Halloween. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at ScareYouToSleep, all one word. If you like this show, then I know you'll love my limited time series with Spotify and Parcast called Mediums, all about the underbelly of the spiritualist movement of the early 20th century. My adult listeners can submit stories any time of the year to scareyoutosleep at gmail.com. Remember to drink your water, go get some sleep, and sweet dreams.